Welcome to the Neurosurgeon's Journey, part of the Library of Brain and Spine Group's Medical Student Neurosurgery Training Center and a project in collaboration with the AANS Young Neurosurgeons Committee. I'm your host, Michael Kortz. I'm currently the Senior Director of Education Resources for MSNTC, and shortly you'll be joined by my co-host, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. He's an Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at UCLA and the immediate past chair of the YNC. We're glad that you joined us as we uncovered the rewarding life of a neurosurgeon and explore what it takes to get there. All right, welcome back to the Neurosurgeon's Journey. This is Mike alongside Dr. Johnson, as always. Dr. Johnson, how are you today? Doing great, Mike. How about you? Doing very well. In the thick of uh, interview season, um, one day at a time for sure. Um, today, we are joined by Dr. Oren Gottfried. Uh, very excited to have him on. He's a professor of neurosurgery at Duke University, where he specializes in treating complex spinal disease and is the director of neuroscience clinical services and is the clinical vice chair of quality. He previously completed his residency training and spine fellowship at the University of Utah after earning his medical degree from the University of Arizona. He has a passion for patient-centered care, as well as mentorship of medical students and trainees in neurosurgery. Dr. Gottfried also has a vibrant acting and television consultation career, appearing on shows such as The Good Doctor and Chicago Med, among others. Dr. Gottfried, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is great. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on. I'm sure many of our listeners followed you on Twitter and um, have already gleaned a lot of your wisdom, um, but hopefully we can uh, amplify your voice a little bit again today. So Dr. Gottfried, we always like to start to, uh, by hearing our guests, you know, passion for neurosurgery, their journey towards it. And for you specifically, um, why you got into spine surgery, you know, at this point in your career. Yeah. So my journey to neurosurgery journey to spine, probably it's a similar story to many of your audience is such that I, I wanted to go into a field where I could really make a difference where an intervention, a surgery could have potentially a great impact on a, on a person, on a patient. And um, working within neurosurgery, I found that I could predict the outcomes of spine quite a bit better. There are areas of neurosurgery that despite advances, great techniques, solid reasoning, we still can't predict the outcomes um, as much as I would like. But in spine, we have a fairly good ability with our own you know, history, wisdom, and even using predictive analytics now to predict the outcome. So I've quite enjoyed the field. I enjoy other spine surgeons, other neurosurgeons. It's a good group. So when did you first know that you wanted to do neurosurgery? Was that uh, in college or before that? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a time in college where I appreciated how fascinating the neurosciences were and how we don't know so much and we do know a lot and that I knew there was going to be advances every year and our field could change dramatically. So I think it's a bit naive during college to know exactly what we want to do in life, but the interest was peaked and it just kept on the kept on building throughout medical school. That's great. Actually, I would love to take a quick you know, sidestep here. And if you do follow Dr. Goffrey on Twitter, you, you know that he's very active in, in discussing patient-centered care. And I think that's something that we should touch on today. What are some pieces of advice that you have for fellow neurosurgeons or especially medical students and trainees and how to really put the patient first. It's so easy to get caught up in the, the rigors of training. And it, sometimes we forget that some, you know, how do we, how do we keep, stay focused on the patient and what are some ways that we can um, optimize that relationship? That's a very good question. I mean, we all start with a premise in medicine as we want to help people, you know, that's almost like the overdone buzz term. We just want to help, but I mean, it really is 
central to everything. You know, in residency, you're going to learn some very advanced techniques, decision making, but fundamentally that core relationship with the patient is everything. And if you do buy into the technology, technological side or, you know, the medical details, you could get away from what is important. And it's that patient. And throughout the education, even in my you know, years in practice, that is the central thing that we're all working for. So you think about the patient right, right in front of you, whether it's right. on rounds, whether it's in the PACU on a post-op, whether you get to go to clinic and talk to patients, it's that patient. And then think about our census in neurosurgery. We're taking care of 20 or 30 patients and specifically our residents and our students. It's that one patient. When you go into that patient's room, even if you're in there for five or 10 minutes, it could make their day, it could ruin their day, it could impact their hospital stay. So I just try to think that person right in front of me, that second, how am I going to do my best? What can I do to make it better? How can I make it not about me? You know, have I had a tough day? I really have to take a kind of a check on my, what's going on in my life and how do I go into that room and do the best? And one of the easy answers is just listen, you know, don't just talk, but listen to that person and hear what they're saying and, you know, take a second and reflect on what they're saying, their experience. So even on quick rounds, you might only have a couple minutes. My critics would say, well, we're, we're working so hard. We don't have time, but even a good short interaction is better than a long poor interaction. So making the most in that short period of time. So I feel strongly as a neurosurgeon that we could be looked at as a non-concerned group that we are focused on the field and not the patient. I know that's not true because I work with really good people that prove it every day, but it's a perception. So I basically felt like using Twitter as my voice, I was able to explain the few extra things I like to do. And it's not for everybody, but maybe I'll trigger in a positive direction, someone to think about you know, that patient-centered interaction and how to do better. It's just like kind of a, a nudge to everyone. Let's go do better. Let's be like the most friendly group of, you know, specialists ever. And I think it's possible. And that's what I find most important. Well, you've certainly uh, inspired me to, to take that into account. Um, definitely taking not just your pragmatic becoming a neurosurgery type, neurosurgeon type uh, pieces of advice to heart, um, but also some of the patient-centered care and ways of thinking about the process on my sub-eyes. So I appreciate that. Dr. Johnson, I'd love to hear you elaborate on everything Dr. Goffrey said and anything that you think would be um, relevant to, to that discussion. Yeah, no, I really appreciate his point of view and I concur 100%. I think it is easy to uh, be blinded by the flashing lights of complex technique and trying to, uh, you know, even in academics, try and make a difference in the field in other ways, but you really do have to be completely centered on, on that individual patient's outcome and experience, because it's really fundamental to what we do. Otherwise, you know, it's just kind of a empty, hollow, hollow existence. If you're not trying to help, you know, each individual patient you meet have the best possible outcome. I think that's hundred percent right. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate your guys' wisdom. So I think we can take a step forward and discuss, you know, we are in the, the thick of interview season and both of you are very well versed on how to be successful through this process. Dr. Goffrey, we'll start with you. What are just a few pieces of advice um, for neurosurgery, uh, neurosurgery applicants right now um, to excel on the interview trail 
and maybe in particular on how to do well in the virtual environment. I know that's still still a tricky uh, point of um, tricky challenge for both programs and applicants uh, alike. So would love to hear your thoughts on that. And then Dr. Johnson would also love for you to follow up. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are some uniform themes, whether it's virtual or it was in person that still stand. See what you can get before the actual interview as far as information. You know, there are some limitations, but talking to people who interviewed there previously, talking to residents that have some knowledge from their time, talking to as many faculty as you can, um, be aware you could get each individual's biases. Things could be out of um, you know, the timeline, like someone witnessed something 20 years ago, but take it all, do your reading and come to that interview most prepared. I think there is an extra edge when someone actually knows who they're meeting with. And that's sometimes difficult on a, in a virtual format. You might not know which faculty you're going to meet with. You may not know which residents you're going to interact with. So just spend a few hours and look up everybody's, you know, their website, do a little reading. I really suggest the more you know about each person you're talking with, the more you really know who you're talking with. Now you're going to gather information as you're speaking to them. But if you come to the table knowing someone's a, you know, a cerebral vascular surgeon, someone's a spine surgeon, someone's a brain tumor surgeon. I mean, you're not going to change your answers, but you're going to understand where they're coming from. And you're going to, you can skip the intros. You actually know who you're speaking to and you can get further. So I think knowing who you're speaking with, I think knowing what things you really want to know about the program before the interview, you have a, a list of, you know, criteria you're trying to fulfill. Is this a group that has good camaraderie? What's the attending resident relationship like? And you don't want just flat answers. You want to really delve into those. And so I think you have uh, a list, a checklist of what you have to know. I would also add that even if you ask the question 10 times, keep on asking that question. It, it does seem always different when you get to the end and someone says, do you have any questions? And you say, no, your colleagues answer them all. You're actually telling that person, yeah, I like you, but I value your colleagues more. So I mean, you want to be ready to ask questions, but not just reading the same exact question. Like you're going to target it to what that person has expertise. So I look at it as each interviewer as an opportunity to get insight into that patient, that person's um, experience at that facility. How long have they been there? How have things changed in the last few years? So, I mean, to summarize everything, it's coming to the table very prepared. I know neurosurgery applicants are going to come prepared, but I've seen ones that were just like ready to go. I mean, you have your game face on, you're ready to go. Just like when we go do surgery, you're ready to go help that person. And so taking that same mentality, I think can lead to a very productive interview. I think that person will actually take more from the interview. It's not just that they'll be reflected more highly by the, the center, and then just showing like proper engagement. I mean, even if this isn't your favorite place, it might actually be your favorite place and you have misinformation. So going into every interview, like it's your number one with that, that kind of enthusiasm and um, dedication, it will never go wrong. And that will definitely be a win-win. That's really good. Dr. Johnson, do you have anything to add? Once again, very well said. I don't have a whole lot to add. That's really great advice. I, I think being prepared is very important. I think uh, just thinking back on my interview experience, individuals I connected the best with were, were exactly, as he said, the people I knew who they were. I had an interest, a similar interest to them, you know, and, uh, and we talked about things that we were commonly interested in. And there was obviously a lot of fact finding about the program. And you, you talk with that about everyone. Um, but I do think that 
being engaged, interested, um, and, and knowing something about the person. I mean, there's a lot of people you're interviewing with, so you may not know everything about everyone, but at least having an idea. And, and then, you know, there's maybe some specific people that you really sort of have a good rapport with uh, and maybe have some common interests. And that's, that's a bonus too. But I, I agree 100%. You just don't want to seem passive and not have any questions. And you just want to be you know, come across as a nice, well-adjusted person that everyone would want to work with. That's the only other thing I'd add. So, Dr. Johnson, are there ways to, on the applicant side, to assess? We always talk about the, the nebulous term fit between the program and the, the applicant. Are there ways to assess that from the applicant side? It's, I know we you know, try to get into resident dinners, and that's a big thing that's missing in the inversible environment. Are there things that you know, maybe we can look at a little more, you know, maybe look at it under a microscope a little bit more to assess that, that relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's a couple of different levels to fit, right. Uh, one is just the culture that you feel comfortable in, you know, um, some people like really regimented, some people like, you know, very personal, you know, my own direction, uh, you know, of my interests will allow these people will support me and allow me to grow in my own direction. There's uh, just the interpersonal fit just with the residents and kind of their, the way that they like to think and uh, about their lives. Uh, you know, and some, some programs are very family heavy. Everyone has children, you know, and some people, have, some programs don't, you know, so there's lots of different levels of fit. And then there could be, uh, you know, a fit with related to your specific research that you want to do. Uh, you know, this place has like one of the three places that in my list that has XYZ resource. I need to do what I want to do in my career. So that's, you know, that's important to identify. But in general, I think if you have, um, like Dr. Godfrey said, you have your list of criteria, you want a program and you do the, the finding of, of whether this particular program has a lot of those things in a satisfactory way. That's the level of fit too. You know, this has everything I need uh, and I like the people. So uh, I think there's like different ways to assess fit and it's kind of a nebulous term for a reason um, because it's different for, I think for each individual and each individual program. I had a, a resident once tell me if you, at, at the end of the re- interview, if you want it to keep going, that's a good gut feeling to, to, to use as a, you know, a way that you felt was a good fit. But I agree. It's, it's kind of hard to define. Dr. Goffrey, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but maybe, you know, what are some questions that you think applicants should ask any program? You know, what are, what are a couple, you know, really quote unquote high yield questions that any applicant should ask a program that would be ubiquitous to their ability to become a competent neurosurgeon by the time they graduate? Yeah. I mean, there's so many things, but I think in general, I mean, referring back to the prior conversation, I mean, asking each person, how would you describe the the working relationship between faculty and residents? I'd like to hear everyone's perspective. And you start hearing themes and you also can hear what someone's saying and also determine what they're saying. And there are buzz terms and there are just quick answers. But if you really sense that people like who they work with, which is what it has to be, I mean, you definitely have to like your co-residents and feel like you're in this together, but you should also feel that you're in it together with your attendings. Um, You can ask what is done to make the residency training better. Like what is the manner of feedback that's given to the the residents? Um, What is the manner that issues are brought up? I mean, I'm giving an example, not something specific to any place, but there could be somewhere that doesn't give case-by-case feedback, that doesn't sit with the residents every week. I would want a program that takes the effort where faculty and residents are sitting down together and discussing the issues real time. Um, You could ask what changes have occurred in the last year. I personally would like to see stability. I mean, you want to grow and implement new initiatives at work, but you don't want everything to change every week. So what level of consistency do you have in your job? 
I know with COVID, um, social activities are limited, but there are ways to figure out if people actually get along and like each other. And you could ask about, you know, what's allowed in COVID times, social activities. So, um, you know, something that many applicants want to know is how quickly am I going to get into the OR? And am I going to be able to graduate with competence or beyond competence? I would hope that question has irrelevance because there's residency review committees and there's ways to keep everybody good. There are programs that are great, but I feel like there are mechanisms to prevent programs from not actually training people. So I'd hope, you know, that it wouldn't be a race to get to the OR, but it's like, what are your chiefs able to do when they graduate? And if they can't even tell you what cases they've done, like they haven't looked at the log and they don't even know, you know, what kind of jobs, if you're thinking academics, Tell me about the last five years of your graduates. You know, where are they? You can probably figure this out, but how does that attending view, you know, the training? Because in my mind, we want to train great neurosurgeons without bias towards they all need to be chairs or they all need to be in private practice. It's like we just want to train people that live on the legacy, that take from the program and make the program better and we make them better. So I know I took a kind of a long answer, but these are kind of some of the variables that I think you need to know. And I think it's even harder in a virtual world, but the more people you talk to, so look at everyone as a resource. Every interview you're granted, every person you meet with, that's a resource. And you're actually a resource to them. So it's a mutual relationship. And so I just feel like have some fun with these interviews, but also get your questions answered. I would hate for an applicant to go through a few hours or a day and just feel like, what just happened? You know, I just like nothing. I didn't grow in my knowledge of this program or, you know, whether I want to go there. So I think like just grab it by the horns and enjoy the day. And it's all about you and getting your questions answered and getting a feel. Yeah, that's great. That is, that is phenomenal. Um, both of you, thank you so much. Um, maybe on the flip side, um, what are a couple questions that you think every applicant should be able to answer? Um, and with you know, being honest and judicious language and being able to they, they think about the particular question. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the simple one, tell me about yourself. I'm always surprised where, like, that's like the easiest answer. I'm basically asking someone, who are you? You know, what, what motivates you? What excites you? What have you done? Now, I don't want to see a CV again. I mean, as you know, there are at any center, there's a committee that's reviewed everyone's files, but many of the people doing the interviews are not that committee. They're just wanting to get to know the person. So having a nice answer that reflects honestly on what you bring to the table and what you've accomplished, I think just answering that answer and then answering questions very directly, like listen to the question. And I could be faulted even right now, it's taking, taking a round about, but listen to the question and give an answer but you'll know when your person interviewing you is having a good time and they're enjoying themselves and then you can elaborate more. Um, I think everybody's asked why neurosurgery and I think our answers probably are more similar than different, but giving your unique energy. I mean, what I think an interview really is, is when you mentioned fit earlier, earlier, it's just likability. I mean, there are people just from the onset within a second, I'm like, wow, I like this person. They're just like interesting to listen to. And so, I mean, dialing up your likability of what's made you successful and why people have liked working with you and giving examples. Um, I think just giving um, specifics, like if you give these very broad answers and everyone starts looking alike, but giving very specific focal answers that by, by the example gives us you know, full knowledge of the situation. So I think effective speakers can say things in a short duration that actually 
um, go far. But if I could summarize just being the most likable person, I think at this point, every applicant got in the door and has an interview. And the interview is not for someone to explain any apparent deficiencies. If those deficiencies, quotation, were an issue, they wouldn't have got the interview. So I think the interview is to like amp up your candidacy by being likable, interesting, mesh well, just being a good person. Right. Yeah, that's that's really wise. Dr. Johnson, do you have any advice for applicants on, you know, a couple of questions that they that you would like to, you know, maybe not specifically that you like to ask uh, applicants, but things that you think applicants should be able to articulate effectively uh, in an interview? Yeah, interestingly enough, there, you know, the questions that I ask people, it's it's really more. I mean, I've seen their CV, so it's really more to get to know them and uh, really to get a sense of who they are. Because you, you know, like Dr. Garfi said, like what you really want to do is is uh, assess this person and whether you'd like to work with them or not. I mean, that's really it. their qualifications are there. You know, I think you have to be able to answer anything about anything you put on your CV. And that's just kind of a basic thing that you just have to be able to talk about anything on your CV, whether it's a research, it's a volunteer opportunity. You just never know what's going to pique an interviewer's interest, uh, you know, that, they, that they've seen on your CV. And so you have to be able to discuss that. I think the question about, you know, who are you, like your background, you should have like a pretty succinct um, discussion about that um, and how that led you to neurosurgery and where you want to go in the future. You know, what do you want to do? And I think it's totally okay to say, I don't know what subspecialty, but I want to train. I want to, I want to, uh, you know, kind of just an idea of what you might want to do in the future, what you might be interested in now. And the proviso, of course, being that you don't know, you haven't gone to residency, but I've been interested in this and that. I've had a few people ask me when I was, in re- you know, re- interviewing, uh, like, tell me about an interesting case that you saw. So they kind of want to like get your insight into the cases that you've seen or an interesting one, you know, just to kind of see your level of understanding. So you may want to be prepared for something like that. Those are some. Those are some big ones. I, I really, personally, I try to use the interview as as a get to know you session, and um, you can just tell a lot about people's like we talked about before their level of interest, their engagement, the questions they ask you, and just trying to figure out like how, how the fit is. Um, just just an interpersonal level, and, and in the end, people just want nice people to work with. I think uh, who are competent and take good care of patients, and will make the program look good in the future when they graduate. Yeah, let's, we could probably end it right there. <laughs> It'd be, that'd probably be perfectly fine. Um, but this is, this has been great. So uh, maybe as a, it's going to be pretty similar, but, you know, doing well on sub internships has been a theme of our, our podcast. And we love hearing people's different thoughts on that. Dr. Godfrey in particular, you know, who knows how it's going to look in the future. Um, hopefully it'll be normal next year, but we don't know for sure. Um, do you have any thoughts on how to do well, how to really make the most of those four weeks um, or eight weeks for a particular medical student? Uh, and then, you know, what are some qualities that can be demonstrated on a sub I that you really look for in a nursery candidate and, and resident? So I think um, the coming in, like if it's a program you haven't spent much time with doing as much research before you show up on the first day, but on the first day, really understanding what is everybody's role on service and seeing what they do and seeing how you can insert yourself and not just on the boards, but in the OR, finding a way to insert yourself and being helpful. I, no one expects the sub I to come in and know how to you know, do anything too complex, but the person that can insert themselves and actually make the team better. If you can come in in a four to eight weeks and make the team function better, find you know openings where things are maybe inefficient or something to make it better. I mean, showing competence, just having a basic understanding 
I'm completely symptomatic to the fact that some people come to neurosurgery later, but there is a way you could demonstrate that you understand things. I mean, reading up for a case, no one should be told to do that. That should be just common sense that in your last few minutes before, you know, at any point the night before, the day before on call, you're doing your reading, you understand the case. But again, no one expects the person to jump in there and be able to do the case, but understanding what you could see of the case, what's going on. Um, in general, keeping a positive attitude. I mean, everybody knows that neurosurgery residency can be very difficult. And what we want is that new energy, a medical student that comes in that's just so excited, but not the person that goes too far and it's like, everything's exciting. You know, it's like, you have to be rational about it, but like good energy, you know, like I've had people and granted, I, I value every person that comes in and someone could ask, you know, 10,000 questions while I'm trying to operate. Now, granted, if you ask me a question about what's going on in the case right then, that's on my mind. It's very easy to answer. But if you ask me a question about some case that you saw in the wards while we're doing the most intense part of the case, my answer is not going to be as educational. So I think knowing a key theme when I talk about many different things is know your audience, know your situation. So I think the applicant that comes in and can really understand, you know, it's almost emotional intelligence, understanding, oh, this is a really good question to ask. Um, I'll ask it right now. And then it's like, while I'm operating, I'm like, wow, that was really insightful that the individual could, even though they couldn't see everything, could sense that's the part of the case and wanted to know a little bit more about the anatomy or even taught me something, you know? So it's like, this is a bilateral process. I love learning from the, the resident, learning from the medical student. So I think these are some of the elements. But again, just like I said for the interview, have some fun. You're, you might never, you might not spend time on this service. You might eventually go somewhere else. These are a bunch of neurosurgeons you're going to see at national meetings forever. They just like enjoy it. I would say really get to know each resident. I think people can come on service and they work with one team or they switch every week, but try to get to know every resident, try to get to know every faculty. You don't know which of those individuals will become a lifelong mentor or that you will you know, collaborate. So I'd say get to know everybody. And probably another thing just to remind everyone is everybody has a voice. It's not just the residents. And the attendings, it could be an off-service resident, on-service, it could be an administrator, it could be a nurse, like everybody has a voice and everybody can help like your rotation. So it's like value every individual. And I do feel like everybody talks. So it's like, if you're doing good things, you don't need to tell us about it. It'll actually come up. Like I've had a medical student help with the team clean and turnover. And it's like, no one told me, but I just, you know, I could see it from the sidewalls dictating or what have you. And it's like, those little moves really separate an individual from the path. Yeah, that's great. And Dr. Dawson, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, this is a, obviously you can talk about this for all, you know an entire episode. Uh, there's lots of nuances, uh, yeah. but I think the, I think I think his answer is right on uh, the emotional intelligence thing. I mean, it's it's hard to like. I think that's exactly right. It's like you just have to be situationally aware and be smart, you know, and. Um, and uh, a couple of things that I would say people should just be aware of is that there's some rules that aren't explicitly discussed, that, like related to like educational conference. So you see, you know, students really badly want to impress everyone and they're an educational conference and there's an attending discussing, a, you know, a PG, with a PGY two or three, a case, and, and they don't know an answer. That is not the time for a medical student who may randomly have read about this and know the answer to chime in and say the answer, right? Because that kind of embarrasses the, the resident. 
So you just kind of have to like answer these kind of questions when you're asked, and that's your time to impress people and not and not overrun you know meetings or be too too outspoken. Kind of you have to kind of know your role, but also be assertive and confident. You know, so it's 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 complicated. The only other thing I would add, but that, that's just, that's just a piece of advice. I've seen people fall into that pitfall a number of times. Um, the other thing is that um, you know this is your time to really assess the program, like you talked about earlier. Um, how well can the chief residents operate? You know, um, what can they do? What are they comfortable with? And that's a, obviously a little bit resident dependent. You know, you can have some people that are, you know, not not better or, or worse, but just like have a stronger skill set or, or more comfortable with certain surgeries than others or whatever. But but in general, you can get a, you can get a really good sense of the program, how they how they interact with each other, their educational conferences, and how good or poor they are. The rapport between the attendings and the faculty very well when you're actually there compared to when you're just on a virtual interview. So I would really take advantage of, of understanding that program really well and thinking about those things carefully while, while you're at a you know, particular program, um, because it is going to be a bit more guesswork when you go onto you know, virtual interviews and you've never actually spent time on the service. And, and, then that, and that goes the opposite way too, which is that they really get a very detailed chance to evaluate you as well um, when, you're, when you're at a place um, rotating. So it's a two-way street, but use that to your advantage for at least your own uh, information gathering also. Uh, I think there's there's been some common themes to this whole uh, discussion about interview sub eyes. Um, you know, just using common sense, being <laughs> being a good person. Um, sometimes we we get so caught up in the the rat race that we forget the the basics. And so I think it's it's good to think about those things again. So I appreciate both of your wisdom. So Dr. Gottfried, I, I love to make a kind of a 90 degree turn um, and discuss your acting career. And you know, I think that's very unique and very interesting. And maybe we can discuss it and also in the context of, you know, what are, how are, how should medical students and trainees perceive their passions outside of the operating room? Um, and how can we, you know, marry those things with our passion for nurse surgery um, for the long haul? Um, because I think, you know, it, you know, like we've talked about, it's so rigorous and so time consuming. Um, how can we uh, use those to our advantage and to really write the story that we want to write for our lives, um, you know, with neurosurgery and those things? Yeah, happy to answer. So, I mean, just as a little background, I've been involved with TV mostly on the end of medical advising, consulting for about 11 years. A key tenant for me, we talked about patient-focused care, is also just education. So whether that's educating the medical, trying to educate medical students, working with residents, educating patients on their own problem, um, doing research, you know, educating people on your research, I feel like there's kind of a big divide between the knowledge in medicine and what we need to give to our patients. And they're running to learn about their illness and we're trying to guide them, but it's just like there's a mismatch of information. We have the ability to understand it. And then it's now our duty to explain it in a way that makes sense. So in TV, I try to do that where I try to take complex themes that are more really human themes, the human struggle dealing with a disease, but to explain it to larger audiences. So I never intended when I went to be a doctor to think I would get the format of, you know, educating on the level of millions, but it's also a big responsibility where like I have to make sure that we don't project a disease in the wrong way or show too much of an extreme case when there's many people suffering from the more common, you know, presentation. So I do a lot of work on just keeping things real and keeping the struggle real and really highlighting that, you know, humans are struggling from this illness. Um, then to flip it and talk about what it means to me as a neurosurgeon, 
Well, a lot of my consulting is not just neurosurgery, it's all of medicine. So I'm constantly reading literature from every specialty as much as I can. Of course, I read a lot. I read all the neurosurgery literature, but I'm looking out for other specialties to make sure I understand. I'm consulting with other specialties because I can read about things in general surgery or vascular or thoracic, but I'll do even better talking to people. So where I think it makes me a better doctor, better neurosurgeon is that I'm I'm kind of in their world, talking to them, reading their literature. And so when I have a patient that has an illness that goes beyond neurosurgery and we're consulting a service, one, I may actually know a lot about it, not as well as they do, but then I'm learning from it. So I'm kind of just building what I think is, you know, a good encyclopedic knowledge of all of medicine, but it transfers back. I mean, I've had medical things happen in the hospital that because of my reading in other fields, I was actually a better doctor to that patient. So um, I think it, it not only is it educational for me, but I actually enjoy it. It's something that's fun and entertaining. I also think we need to step out of our role as neurosurgeons and see the world with other eyes or views. And so I see process. I see how these shows are put together. I see how there's an interaction. I see system-based efficiencies that are present in medicine. So a lot of times I like to apply what I've learned in the TV business Granted, there are people putting in far more time than me, but I'm getting, I'm allowed a view into their world. And I think every neurosurgeon needs to step outside of neurosurgery and find their passion. Um, you know, many people in neurosurgery are very into physical fitness and whatever their sport is. I think residents need to maintain that. I think people need to, you know, garner their friendships, learn from others, you know, um, just have a real well-rounded being. I do think it's possible for someone to come into neurosurgery and just devote 100%. I know that it takes like devoting 100% to be successful, but you need to keep those other dreams, other passions alive. And I think the most, I see a lot of our residents, they have, I always ask in the OR, I want to know what their hobby is, what their outside interest is. And I really want to engage it as, as an attending to them that I, I value it. And it can be anything, X, Y, Z, they can name anything. And it's like exciting to me. So, and actually, those are things I like to talk about. Now, I'm focused on the patient when we operate, but there, we have, you know, a chance to spend hours with our residents. And I love hearing about what drives them. It actually lets me understand how I can teach better by knowing how they process things, how they engage with the world, what they enjoy. Um, so I know a long-winded answer, but I filled in that gap with, you know, TV, um, advising, I do some writing, I've done some acting, but most of my work is just seeing if I can educate a wider audience than just my... Well, just so, to summarize, whatever, whatever people discuss in their interviews that makes them unique, keep those. Like, mm -hmm. don't give up on any of those. Find a way to bring it in a play on a weekly basis, not on a monthly or, wow, I'm two years into residency and I haven't done that at all. But find a way to incorporate it into weekly and, you know, just take a little time. Everybody needs to maintain the human side to them. And I just feel like if it takes taking a checklist and saying, how long has it been since I've done anything for myself or fed into that hobby, I would say everybody needs to maintain that. And it doesn't start it. You don't say... I'm going to get back to it when I'm an attending. That's going to be really hard. It's maintaining yeah. it and even finding new interests while someone's a resident is how I would you know, advise them. Yeah, no, that's great. Dr. Johnson, do you have any thoughts on that? I, uh, I know that, uh, you know, we're all very busy, but I'd love to hear your, you know, what your passions are outside of, of the operating room and how you think that uh, should play into our training and, and life beyond. 
Yeah, no, I think it's important to have an outlet um, from the stress and rigors um, of, of the professional, you know, life. I mean, it's lots of ups and downs. It's a lot of hard work. And there, it is extremely important to have a uh, step back out of that um, outlet. And I 100% agree that we should, you know, you can't go overboard and spend all your time doing your hobby. But I do think it, you know, it's very healthy to have something you're interested in that's not strictly neurosurgery um, to, to do and think about, balance things out. And, um, you know, and for me, uh, you know, I have a lot of hobbies in college and then it dwindled down in medical school and then even dwindled down even more in, um, in residency. But it was really, for me, it was really just exercise. Like it didn't matter what it was, uh, you know, playing a sport or running or swimming or whatever the case may be. Um, I just, I just like to get out and be physically active. I don't have like a specific hobby that, um, you know, is particularly notable, but it was very important to do that. Like just get out, see the beauty in the, of nature, kind of center yourself. And, you know, that's your time to, to kind of decompress or, or be with friends. If you're going to play a sport, you know, basketball or softball or whatever, you know, just get out, get out, get out and do something active. That was my main one. Um, and, uh, and then after that, you know, it's a mixture of that and family life. I think, you know, that's kind of like another major outlet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Dr. Goffrey, what are the, the best medical shows on TV right now? All of them that have a consultant. So, I mean, it's something <laughs> that, if I could just take a perspective, as a medical student resident attending, we are a very critical bunch because we, we know the reality and we kind of demand that reality. Um, but I would ask anybody to shadow me for uh, just a day to understand how this all works. And I mean, how it does work if, it's, if a show has a consultant is ideas are bounced across the consultant. The consultant reads outlines, reads scripts, and provides notes. If a consultant's in good, like they have a good working relationship with the show, it's a bilateral process. Um, and you gradually get trusted. And when you change things just a little bit, it's understood that that's actually good for the show. But you have to change things without adjusting the story. So I think in the long run, the final product is not directly related to how hard the consultant worked. It's how, um, how the consultant's able to convince the writer that this is a better way to do it. So it really comes down to persistence. Um, but sometimes I watch shows and just wonder how did that process get to this point? Not shows I work with. Like, was there a lot of back and forth? And then ultimately they had to go with the drama so on my shows, you know, they'll look a lot better because hopefully because I've worked on things, but the final end result's not going to be a documentary on that disease. Like if I had my way, I, I want it to not be a documentary. I want it to be interesting, but I also want it to be as accurate as possible. But in the end, it's not going to be a failure for me trying. It's just that the story needed to be a little bit more dramatic than any reality. But then there are shows that don't even have a consultant and like, Go throw everything in the air. It's Dr. Google versus medicine. And we know that sometimes in an educated, in the hands of an educated patient, to know where it can go. And so I've seen shows where it's just obvious they didn't have knowledge that they needed to consult a medical person. And what's really upsetting to me is when I actually like a show, a non-medical show, and like, I don't know, my email's public. It would have taken like a simple five minutes for me and I could have fixed it. And it's like, that to me makes me upset. So it's not a medical show. It's like, I'm watching the show that I really like. And it's like, I don't know. I, it makes me want to just like reach out and say, next time, just call me. Cause it's like, I don't charge. I'm just, I do a lot of voluntary work with TV shows. And 
there's an agency out of USC that any doctor can do this. And it's a kind of, I don't know, let's just see. I think it's like a challenge. I just want to make it as real as possible, but I know in the end, it's not going to be the documentary that I tried to make it in some ways. Yeah, no, that's great. It, it kind of gives us a little look in, look into the room a little bit. Cause it's a, uh, you know, when you're just a consumer, you don't really know how it works on the back end. So that's, that's helpful actually. Thank you. Um, so in kind of in the same vein and somewhat to close, um, what are a few maybe movies, books, or TV shows that you think uh, a medical student or early resident should, should engage with that would help them on their, on their path to, to neurosurgery? Yeah, maybe my answer is not going to be very specific. I just think people reading and viewing and not being closed off to neurosurgery. So, you know, that is a common interview question. What have you read recently? I know some of the applicants on video, they have their bookshelf in the back and you can actually see some of the books, but I, just as a side note, I'd make sure you've read those books because you're going to get some questions about it. But I just like to see that someone's reading and has a diversity of interest, that they're not just, you know, reading all the neurosciences, neurosurgery texts, but actually have a passion for the literature, whether it's modern or of any type of genre. Same with the movies. I mean, I think movies and TV add to our life, you know, and I just like to see that people engage it, but I'm not looking for a specific answer. Personally, I like the nonfiction that talks about the art of practicing medicine. So, you know, the Tool Gwandi's types of books. I mean, I think that we've all read them, but I mean, there's a lesson to learn when a surgeon in that case can step back and see the, the process and even tell us ways that we can improve. So that's a genre I find interesting, but I wouldn't fault anybody for really reading anything. Yeah, no, that, that's great. That's a great answer. Dr. Johnson, um, did you have anything else for Dr. Godfrey today? No, but I, um, if you want to know my, the books I like. I well, we get yours every time, but I'd love to hear it. <laughs> I want to know your books. Go ahead. No, I mean, I, I actually am not like an extremely avid reader these days. I, I always joke that my hobby is trying to keep my children alive and well, you know, but, uh, but, you know, I, I actually think like there's like a lot of, there's a lot of wisdom in like the classic literatures. And I know we're very busy and that's uh, people like to consume television and uh, like easier types of information, but like the Dostoevsky's and, and these books are really heavy, but when you stop, stop back and think about them, they're like examining, you know, the human condition in an amazing way. And, uh, and it can really inform how you think about the world. Um, you know, and then, and then I think there's a lot of amazing research going on, like sleep research. Like there's just like, it's impressive the breadth of knowledge that's being developed and just keeping informed about everything. And uh, that's not just strictly neurosurgery or neuroscience, although we should know that very well. I think it's really fascinating. Our guest has been Dr. Gavin Godfrey. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed speaking with both of you. Yeah, it was great. Thanks, Dr. Johnson. Have a good day. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Dr. Godfrey. That was really great. I appreciate you coming on. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, Please subscribe, follow, and leave a comment in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. Make sure to follow MSNTC and the YNC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our webpage at neurosurgerytraining.org slash TNJ, where you can find other episodes and links and resources related to today's conversation. Be sure to check out the YNC's webinar series and visit their webpage on AANS.org. If you have comments or ideas for episodes or would like to join us to talk about anything neurosurgery related, our email address is tnjpodcast at neurosurgerytraining.org. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, I'd like to thank Matt Rosenthal, one of our fantastic MSNTC volunteers, for helping with the editing and processing, and also thank all the fabulous people involved in this project. 
Have a great day and we look forward to next time.